We're in Acts chapter 21. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone will pass one out to you. We've made it all the way here. We're going to start in verse 15. We're going to go all the way to 36. As you guys know, some sections we'll pause and really dive into. And then uh, other sections we'll, we'll roll through pretty quickly. But before we do, let's set this time aside and, let's, and, then, oh, and then we get to hang out in the Word. Let, let's pray. Jesus, have your way. We're your church. We've come here to worship you. We've set this time aside for you. We're not here to be cute, to have fun, although I hope we do a little, but we just want you. It's as simple as that. We're needy, Lord. We need you, a, a work of your Holy Spirit in our own lives, moving us, encouraging us. And so we just pause and say, here we are, Lord. Fill this place up. Help us to understand your word. We submit to it and the authority of it, the truth of it. Confront us, convict us as you see fit. Holy Spirit, teach us. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. As you guys know who've been traveling along with us, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. And it's not going to be an exciting trip. It's going to be a hard trip, and you guys know why. He said in verse 13, just before, this was all last week, he says, I'm not ready he says, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, a lot has led to that statement. A lot of life has been lived, and we're, we're picking up right where Paul's like, I don't even care, right? This is similar to what we saw in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, as you know. Jay, if you don't mind, throw that graphic up that people probably can't read, but... If you can see it, I want you to see where we are in the book of Acts. That yellow highlighter that I made is where we are. And there's some dates. That's going to come into play later. But you'll notice we're in a really important transition period where we're going from, and the, the rest of our conversation here in the book of Acts on is going to be Paul as a prisoner. And it changes where God has in his sovereignty and his beauty has spread the gospel through the known, like, kind of European area. It wasn't then, but now we understand it as Europe, Turkey, Greece, Italy, places like that. The gospel has gone, and now God's going to do a new work in and through Paul, and we're following that journey. And so this is where it lands us. The church had expanded, but now we see that Paul's going to be on trial, and God is going to be faithful to complete his promise in Paul's life that he's going to stand before kings. And he's going to stand before the nation of Israel. And he's going to stand before the Gentiles, all for the point of preaching Jesus. And we're going to watch it unfold. Today we get to see an unfortunate event take place, um, but it's one that Paul had been anticipating for quite some time. So I'm going to read 15 to 25, comment here and there. We'll reset back. You guys know the drill. So let's look. This is Acts chapter 21, verse 15. After those days, we packed and went to Jerusalem. Remember, they're in Caesarea. So they're going to head south now to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain, the guy's name is Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail 
all the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. It's worth pausing and noting that the language that Luke is using is like every detail. We don't get that. We didn't have every detail in the book of Acts. We have highlights of things that have happened in, in, in Paul's life primarily. And then the beginning of Acts was Peter primarily. But here we were reading that when Luke was listening to all that was going on, remember, because Luke wrote the book of Acts, so he's listening to these things take place and he's taking notes. He's a physician. He's a smart dude. <clears throat> He takes note that Paul just shared everything. All the things that had taken place in Philippi and Colossae and Ephesus and and, um, and Corinth and Athens and Berea, all the places that Paul had gone and all the things that had taken place, this is what they're talking about. They're sharing it with the Jews there that are in Jerusalem, those who are following Christ, James being the leader. And that's not James the apostle, that's James the brother of Jesus. James the apostle had been martyred already. And so as he shares these details, notice what he's sharing and notice how Luke writes this out. This is so important and so sweet. It's what God had done. It's not what Paul did. It's what God had done. Now he uses us though, doesn't he? And it's an important thing to remember. I think it keeps us humble in recalling the fact that this is something that only God can do. Any kind of ministry, any kind of stuff that we try to walk out, man, it's the Lord who does it. If you think different, listen, that's yeah, just foolish, I suppose. When I submit myself to the realization that it's God who works in me both to will and to do for his good pleasure, it offers you a place of rest, knowing that he's the one who's going to take care of this, that he's the one who's going to do the ministry. It's not up to you. What does he want from us? Well, if you'll notice, through his ministry, we just open ourselves up. God, here I am. I'm available to you. I'm enjoying you. And as you make yourself available to him and as you enjoy him, you know what he does? He fills your heart. He moves you. That's where it's like his spirit doing the work in and through you. God had done the ministry. God had done the work. And Paul just gets to sit back and say, look what God has done. When they heard, this is in verse 20. This is the, like James and the Jewish leaders. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. That means they praised him. They heard all that had happened, and they were thinking, this is incredible. All these people getting saved. All the, the work that God's doing in, this, in these Gentile lands, the, the Jewish believers in Christ there were like, this is incredible. And they were glorifying the Lord. Like, they were praising God. They were probably saying that, like, praise God, right? When Paul would say a certain thing or, or whatever would happen, they would share this. Remember, he's got a full crew that's with him. Timothy's with him. Trophimus. Uh, Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, different guys are with him, and they're all attesting to these things and sharing. Big old party happening. And they're glorifying the Lord. That's important. Keep that in mind. As they said to him, now James and the people are going to say, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And so they're like, we hear that God's doing some crazy work out and wherever you've been. But let me tell you, Paul, God's been working here in Jerusalem. There's a bunch of Jews who are following Christ now. And they're zealous for the law. That's an interesting statement. We're going to talk about it later. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not circumcise their children nor walk according to their customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who've taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they 
may, so they may shave their heads and that they may all know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you're, you, you yourself are also walking orderly and keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. All of that was taking place in Acts chapter 16. You might remember it. Reset back to 15. <clears throat> I want you to imagine the anticipation that Paul had in going to Jerusalem and why that matters. And it's an interesting thought. As I was studying through this, consider in Acts chapter 18, Paul had said, that there's come in, like, I've got to get to Jerusalem. He, he had to keep a feast in Jerusalem. And so all the way back then, he knew for months, Paul has been anticipating this particular event. And we're watching it unfold before our very eyes this morning. In Acts 19, it says that he purposed in his spirit, man, I got to go to Jerusalem. And then after Jerusalem, I'm going to go to Rome. That's kind of what he was sensing, right? As he's hanging out with the Lord, nothing fancy. He just has this thought, thought like, man, I'm supposed to probably go to these places, you know? He was being led by the Lord is what we've observed. In Acts chapter 20, he says, he's like, listen, I don't know what's going to happen other than in every city that I go to, the Holy Spirit testifies that everywhere I go in Jerusalem, that chains and tribulations await me. That's what he said in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. Then he says in 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may complete the race and the ministry that God has given me to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's like, I don't even care. All that's in front of me is pain and misery. He's like, but Lord Jesus is worth every bit of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Acts chapter 21, this is recent history, last week, they had testified through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to get hurt, don't do it. And then in 21, verse 12, they pleaded with him, don't go. Do you remember Agabus came and took Paul's belt, bound his hands and said, whoever's belt this is, he's going to be bound when he goes to Jerusalem. And that's the occasion then where Paul would say, what are you guys crying for? Don't you know that I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die, right? So we read that at the very beginning. But it's worth pointing out that so much of what we've been watching is leading to this very point. And now Paul is walking to Jerusalem, and I cannot help but think that he's sitting here thinking, when's it going to happen? Am I going to get arrested the moment I step foot in Jerusalem? Will it be a day afterwards, two days? What about when I go to the temple and hang out there? Are they going to take me captive then? When am I going to be bound? When am I going to be beat? I can't imagine walking into it. I was sharing on last service that you guys remember those, that there's times of anticipation that cause really great anxiety. When you know that there's going to be a counseling meeting and it's going to be confrontational and you're just like, oh, I'm ready to get this over with. Let's just go, right? And you're, there's an anxiety about it. I remember growing up, those horrible words you'd hear your mom say when it was, you wait till your dad gets home. And so that I got to wait all day and my dad worked like 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. And so it's like I had to literally wait all day and I earned every bit of what came my way. I can promise you that. My parents are here. You can ask them today. But just the waiting and anticipating, knowing that I've got something ahead of me that I'm not particularly looking forward to. <laughs> something I've earned, so it's really different than what Paul's experiencing here, but something I personally earned. And so you're anticipating that and you're terrified. I don't know what it was like for Paul. He seemed to have some serious resolve in his heart. Whatever comes his way, he's following Jesus. But I have to point out, you guys, just for a second, that God's priority is not your safety and your comfort, okay? Now, we have to wrestle with that sometimes. 
Does he care about you? And the answer is yes. And so this is where that wrestle comes in. But he's done something so much greater than keep you safe. He has saved you from separation from God. That's what's up. Your life, you guys, just so we're clear, is to be lived for him. I know you know that. You guys are so cool. But it is to be lived for him. And as we observe this path that Paul takes, I want to make sure that we, I don't know, like deal with maybe some of that difficult theology that uh, God might lead us to do stuff that puts us in harm's way. And we live in a world that like, I don't know, like champions safety and, and for good reason. Like I'm, because it's important to also say that it, you can't be an idiot, right? And you don't invite pain upon yourself. You don't invite these types of things. That's stupid, just so you know. Paul didn't invite this stuff upon him. Here's what he did. He just said, God, I'm going to follow you no matter what. And the reality is that sometimes God's, God leads you to do things that are difficult. Un- well, golly, they're almost always difficult and uncomfortable. That's why it's hard. And so, yeah, like, it is difficult to reconcile sometimes. Doesn't he love me? Why would he allow Paul to go through such a difficult and awful trial? And those are, like, things you wrestle with. I encourage you guys to wrestle with it. That, yes, his love is so deep, so incredible, and so anchored in the history of the cross that he, he can allow even these things to take place, and I don't have to question his love for me. But it's coming to terms with like the reason we exist, and it's to bring him glory. And I'd like to encourage you, once again, if you'll allow me, man, that he's worthy of it. That he's worthy of it. Every single bit of it. That your life, like we get to follow Jesus now. And because of the work of the cross, he's done this beautiful thing, and he's set us apart. And I get to live for him. Okay. We got to still keep reading. Sorry. There's just a lot of good here, right? He's traveling. There's the anticipation. This guy, Manasin, a quick fun little fact. You'll notice it says that he was an early disciple. The Greek word there is archaeos, which where we get the idea of archaic. And so it's like that which is from the beginning. This Manasin guy is likely a Hellenistic Jew who got saved during Pentecost, perhaps. It's unlikely that he would have followed Jesus during his early ministry because he was Greek. There were some who inquired of Jesus then. For whatever reason, though, Luke makes mention that he's like a really old disciple. He's been with and following Jesus for a long time. And he's probably a wealthy dude because you've got all of Paul's crew that he's rolling with. Plus, you have the disciples from Caesarea going down, and they're all staying in this guy's house. This would have been a big deal back then. It's a beautiful picture of God using different people who have the gift of generosity to to help the church, right? And so we see that they're staying with this guy, Manasin. Um, He has this opportunity to enjoy the fellowship of the apostles. It's worth noting again that when these guys are together, that they have this really sweet fellowship with one another. It's like this, it's like a rolling church from Caesarea down to Jerusalem. And imagine the kind of fellowship these guys have as they're sharing stories, walking to Jerusalem, knowing what's coming. Chains and tribulation, specifically for Paul. But I can't imagine that the other guys that are with them think that they're going to just get off free. 
<clears throat> they might experience the difficulties that Paul's going to experience. And several of these guys, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it was Aristarchus is going to be put in prison with Paul himself. And so these guys don't get off for free. Like they're going to have trouble. So they're walking and talking, fellowshipping. That kind of camaraderie and that kind of community that we have as a church is so important in terms of accountability, encouragement, the kind of love that we have for one another to spur each other and inspire us to continue to follow Jesus. Because last I checked, it gets hard as the world just grinds and grinds against you. And it's like, I need help. There's Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves, which is the habit of some, but gather together, exhort one another so much more as you see the day approaching. Being together is important, and you just see the importance of community as they're rolling down <clears throat> to be encouraged. We need that kind of encouragement. We get down. I was rolling here to work on Tuesday. And I'm coming down this stretch of road, and I seriously am sitting here thinking, what on earth am I doing? Like these thoughts are flooding my mind. What on earth am I even doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? What are you thinking, God, to have me even be in this place that I'm in, right? And so it was this discouragement from the enemy. It happens, right? We all experience it. And then you know what? Wednesday came. And I was reminded, again, of the beauty of gathering together and coming and worshiping and the rest that you find there and then sitting underneath the teaching of God's word. Wednesday night, I get to just sit and enjoy the teaching of God's word. And I'm telling you, it combats the discouragement of the enemy to hold you down, to be able to come and be filled up with other believers and prayed for and encouraged. Like, it means a lot. That's, I know that's why we're here this morning we are not particularly fancy. There's nothing that would draw you here other than I hope that there's a love that you experience. I hope that you experience teaching from God's word that you would be encouraged and moved to go follow after Jesus. We need it. We see this beautiful picture of what's happening here. This Benason guy. Oh, hey, throw up that other. Bailey, can you put that one other timeline on there real fast? That You, you probably can't even read it, but... The church was born somewhere around 30-ish A.D. It's all ishes, so bear with me for those of you who are history nuts. Like, I'm just giving you ishes, okay? 30-ish is when the church was born. That was when Pentecost would happen. Maybe somewhere around then is when this Manasin guy would have been born. Sorry, born again. Paul then was saved or converted somewhere around 34 to 35 A.D. But then those guys who are with Paul, the crew that he's rolling with, they would have been products of Paul's ministry and evangelism during his first, second, and third missionary journeys. That took place around 47 to 56 AD. So Manasin's like 15 years old in the Lord. He's been following Christ longer than Paul has, likely. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of context as far as the timeline goes, there it is. Have fun. Enjoy it. When we get to verse 18... James confronts Paul on some really interesting subject matter. He's like, we got a bunch of Jew Jews who are zealous for the law, but they're all hearing that you're telling everybody to forsake the law of Moses. Zealous for the law. I got this from Guzik Commentary. Check it out for just a moment. Romans chapter 14, in particular, is a really important chapter as it relates to what we would maybe call the law of love, where how do we live among one another when we have different convictions? 
Things that there's things that the Bible describes as sin and like, and that's obvious. And if you're living in sin, then you get confronted and you need to deal, deal with it and you repent, you, whatever. But then there are things that are just gray area where you have a particular conviction about whatever it might be. How do we live with each other? Is kind of what Romans 14 deals with. It seems that Paul, I'm quoting David Guzik, it seems that Paul didn't have a problem with Jewish Christians who wanted to continue to observe old customs and laws. It seems that he himself did so sometimes, such as when he took and fulfilled a vow of consecration, likely the Nazarite vow. That was in Acts chapter 18. Paul seemed fine with this, but listen, it's so long as they didn't think it made them more right before God. And that's like kind of the important part that you can walk these things out and continue in the customs that you had as a Jewish person. This is a beautiful thing that God allows and, and, and the power of the gospel and the beauty of what we have in the grace of God is seen right here. That you can maintain to a point who you are in your national identity, who you are as a people group, whatever it might be, you can continue in that. It's different than what it was back before we have Jesus. You worshiped God in one location, in one place, and that was it. In fact, you could only meet with God one point in time in the year, where one person, once a year, went to one place and offered sacrifices of atonement for the whole nation. Jesus talked about this with the woman at the well when he explained to her, he said, lady, listen, there's coming a time when we're not going to worship on this mountain or the one back there in Jerusalem. But we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And this is the realization of that. And so powerful is the gospel. And so incredible is the work of the cross that you can be anywhere. In Africa, Central America, United States, wherever it might be, Europe. And you can know him. And experience a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Paul is, is walking through this where you can still Walk in your Jewish customs and follow Jesus. How cool is that? We, we have a problem, though. When there's a conflict and you think now because you're doing these things, you're made more righteous because of it. And that's where we're going to find contention. And that's where Paul would, was going to get in trouble. In verse 21, man, we hear that you are saying all these things to forsake the law of Moses and so on. Paul was completely misrepresented. I want to look at what his message was. It might be interesting to you. Here is Paul's message. The first thing, you are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. Now this is going to come in direct opposition of what they had previously known as Jews. But he's telling them, you are saved by grace through faith. There is nothing that you can do to add to the work of the cross. There is no perfect morality in order to gain what Christ has already given you. You're hiding yourself in him. The next thing that Paul would say is that man is not justified by the works of the law. That's Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. You are sold into sin. Like that's when you're born, that's where you're at. You've been separated from God. And apart from the work of the cross, you're lost. Nothing that you can do. How good... Do you have to be in order to make it into heaven? Let me tell you, it's a secret, but I'm going to let it out. Perfect. How on earth do you figure that one out? That's the beauty of what Christ has done. You are not justified by the works of law. Jesus' perfect life becomes yours. 
So you got to wrestle with this. This is what scripture teaches us. And this is why the gospel is so incredible. It's like, you, that's too good to be true. And it's like, you're right, except it's true. But it is too good. You have this incredible gift, the righteousness of Jesus. And so even though I walk and sin and struggle and battle, but I hide myself in Jesus, I put my trust in him. Here's the thing. God sees me like he sees Jesus. Righteous and justified and sanctified. That's how God sees me. We're going to celebrate communion as soon as I'm done here. We get to remember this work of the cross. Like that's why we have an incredible message. That's why Paul would say, I don't care what you do to me. This message is worth everything. That a person would know that God has taken care of it. You no longer have to be guilty for the things you've done. You no longer have to live in shame. You no longer have to strive and try to be good enough. You'll never be good enough. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. Remember the veil was torn from top to bottom? And when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. It's finished. Rest. Put your faith in him. Trust him. His righteousness is yours. How cool is that? And he took on our sin, man. Okay, the purpose of the law, that's the third thing, sorry. Purpose of the law was to teach us that we need Jesus. I'm paraphrasing, but why was the law given? You look at the law and you think, man, I've blown it. I have sinned against the holy God. I've rebelled against his desires and his commands. What do I do? How do I fix the fact that I have broken this relationship? I can't do it. Well, that's where Jesus comes in. The law shows us or teaches us, I need a savior. And so that's what Paul would teach. Don't forsake the law of Moses. Just recognize its rightful place. It teaches you need a savior. The fourth thing was that righteousness comes not from adherence to the Mosaic law, but by faith in Jesus, which is almost a restatement of something I already said. But I wanted five points, not four. Romans chapter 3 talks about this. The fifth thing concerning circumcision, because who doesn't want to talk about circumcision on a Sunday morning? Here's what Paul said. He says it doesn't matter. You need Jesus. He says, if you want to be circumcised, go for it. If you don't want to be circumcised, go for it. All I care about is, do you know Jesus? That's Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, and then chapter 6, verse 15, in case you're wanting to take a notes. This is what Paul's message was. He didn't tell them to forsake Moses, but he wanted them to make sure that they held it in the proper, uh, with a proper understanding. That if you continue in these customs, don't you dare think that this adds to the cross. And we have to walk in that today like you, to, to, to remember and to know that your righteous works and like your good things, like we want to walk and, and live righteously, that's a good thing. But don't you think that God looks at you any different than he does because he sees you as perfect in Christ already. And so from that position of completeness, from that position of you're already blameless, you're already righteous, we get to do works now. We don't work to get to that position, you guys. That's the beauty of Christianity and what we have. It's called rest. That's why Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. But now Paul gets an opportunity to demonstrate and like kind of like reconcile relationships with the Jews who believe in Jesus. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now that's kind of a cool verse because there's some wiggle room for having contention, I suppose. 
I've done as best I can to live peaceably with all men. Paul has an opportunity now to mend relationships. Now, a lot of people will say that he compromised in a serious way. He should have never done this. But it's important to, to, for you guys probably to understand that there were certain ceremonies that a Jew would undertake that were an act of worship and not atoning for sin. If Paul was going to go and atone for sin for these guys, here's what I think, he would have never done it. He already had a massive blow up. You guys remember when he was fighting with Peter and Peter had left and, and wasn't hanging out with the Gentiles because, because people from James were, were with him. And so he was eating with the Gentiles and then these guys came down, the Jews from Jerusalem, and then he stopped eating with the Gentiles. He's like, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't be eating that way. So he came over here. And Paul said, what are you doing, Peter? You are being a hypocrite. And let him have it, right? He kind of had that conversation with him. <clears throat> he already had that. But here he has an opportunity to go and say, guys, it's fine. If you want to continue to worship God like you had and offer these sacrifices and consecrate your life, that's fine. It's not a work of righteousness. It doesn't justify you, but it can be an act of worship. You guys can live and, and say, Lord, I'm not going to do this, or I'm going I'm to adhere strictly to this kind of a disciplined life. Why? Not because if I do it, God's going to like me more, but will it discipline you more? That's a good thing, right? Will it help you overcome maybe certain sins and certain patterns in your life? Like, amen, go for it. Nothing wrong with being diligent. Nothing wrong with living a life that is stringent and unholy, whatever it might be. There's nothing wrong with it. Just know that God sees you as he sees his son, Jesus. Because if it becomes something that you're doing to please God, now you're striving in the flesh and you are going to become exhausted. And this relationship that was once beautiful and real and good between you and the Lord now becomes transactional. And you lose what Christ had accomplished on the cross in relationship. Take that for what it's worth. We can never entertain sin. There comes a point where my compromise becomes too much. I want to, like Paul compromised here. He went and took these guys. He says, listen, if this will be a blessing for you guys, I'll do it. But there does come a point where it becomes sin, and we will have to know. This is discernment. We just got to be in the word and be learning what it means. <clears throat> when does my compromise with the world, right? I'm trying to reach people and I'm trying to communicate with them, but when does it go too far? It's when you guys pray. Ask the Lord for wisdom and how you deal and walk through this world. Okay, now we get to this. This is what we'll wrap up with. In verse 28, notice, Paul's there. He had gone through and they're at the temple. Throw that picture of the temple up so people can look at something while they're listening to me blab on. <clears throat> men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, this place, and furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. They previously saw, this is Luke commenting, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. On the top right-hand side of this picture, there's this fortress thing. I don't know if you guys can see it, but there's these four little fortress things. Rome had built a, a fortress 
right onto the temple, temple complex, as a 100% Rome just saying, just so you Jews know, like we see you and we're in control. <laughs> there's no other reason than that. So there's this thing, and there's a guy, next week we're going to talk about Claudius Lysias, the commander of this particular garrison, and a really neat story that I found, listen to Joe Foch, he has a book of history about the Roman legions, and I'm going to read an excerpt from it. It's a fascinating history of this exact event that took place. It's really cool. Anyway, we'll get to that next week. But there they are, and I want you to think, how long would it take to go from that garrison, so all this tumult's, going, or this tumult's happening, they're beating him, and they, the Romans hear about it, and they, they organize their troops, and they were probably pretty quick, but then they go from that fortress all the way around into the temple and rescue Paul. He got beat for a, a decent amount of time. I don't know, like two, three minutes. I don't know if you've ever been beaten before. I personally have not. Um, but a minute would be long enough. <laughs> two minutes. Three minutes of people punching you and kicking you and a big crowd. Like that was the situation that he found himself in. Thankfully, this guy came and started taking care of him. The commander, this is verse 33, came near, took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains and asked, what in the world did you do to cause this kind of commotion? So then people said one thing. Everybody else was saying another. They couldn't ascertain the truth. He commanded Paul to be taken back to the barracks, which is that fortress right there. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. They were still trying to get him. When he reached the stairs, sorry, I already read that. The, for the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. That is like a euphemism for we want him dead. They want him to be killed. What they get so mad about, I'll describe it like this and then we'll be done. You probably, okay, go to the next picture. You guys see where it says Temple Mount. And if you squint really hard, on the left-hand side, you're going to see a line that comes down, and then you're going to see a section of the temple. What that was, a little barricade. And it separated where the Gentiles could go and where the Jews could go. And so sensitive was Rome to this issue. You might remember that Rome took away Israel's ability to do capital punishment, to kill. They left an exception for one thing, and that was... If a Gentile crossed over that little bitty wall, the Jews could stone him right there and then. And what the Jews were worried is that Paul, being a guy who's a hater of all the customs, they think, took Trophimus into the temple and defiled the temple. And it's a big deal. And so now they're mad about it. But what's interesting is that middle wall that's right there is spoken about. Paul talks about it in Ephesians which is after all these events that had taken place. Paul, sitting in prison after having been taken captive here in the book of Acts, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says in chapter 2, really verses 11 through 18, but verse 14 says, and he himself became our peace. He's talking about Jesus. He himself became our peace. And he has broken down the middle wall of separation. And what he's specifically referring to is that little wall that we see there in the temple. And what he goes on to say is that the work of Jesus on the cross has broken down that which separated the Jew and the Gentile. That there's no excuse anymore for us to hold things against each other in terms of prejudice, where you're from, and so on. That the gospel tears all these things down. And it unites a group of people. What we see here happening on the temple mount was started because there was separation. But what Jesus has done is he's brought people together 
in a really unique way, which really goes back to this idea of community and fellowship that we have because of what Christ has done. That uh, we in here share something together and it's Jesus. Whereas we would have excuses and reasons for us to be separate and to maybe bicker and fight, which I know sometimes we can and we need to learn how to walk through these things. But Jesus unites us. And, and the cause of the gospel is something that we all get to take part in and love one another in. That middle wall of separation that has been broken down because of Jesus, well, is, is so similar to that veil that was torn from top to bottom. Two things were broken down when Jesus did his work on the cross. The first one started in the Holy of Holies where the, the veil of the temple was torn. We now have access to the presence of God. Whereas before, sin kept me separated. But I now have access to the presence of God, and I will for eternity. And he also broke down this middle wall of separation. It's an odd place to end, but I want you guys to be encouraged that as we, we leave from this place to walk in the finished work of Jesus, for you guys to be encouraged to wrestle and fight for unity among one another, and that the love of Jesus would bind us together, not the kind of love the world has, um, not the kind where we just affirm everything. It's not what love is. But love that's willing to, to pursue a person and love a person and invest in a person. Like, that's what I'm talking about. We desire that. And as we celebrate the work of the cross through communion, you guys, allow the Lord to minister to your heart that he has called us and he's united us they're like, we have a family right here. And then together we would serve and love one another. When people come into this church, that they would feel love, the love of Jesus. And that you guys would walk in the freedom of what Christ has done. Not striving to please God, but resting in the finished work of the cross. Let's pray, and then I'm just going to be done, okay? All right, Jesus, we ask for help in navigating through this. And as we just, we finished this morning, it's like we just really need you to show us what it looks like to navigate all this, to walk in uh, loving people who have different convictions, helping people who are walking in sin, that we'd be patient and gracious with each other, remembering that you, Lord Jesus, have broken down that wall of separation that we now get to be close to each other. Um, we get to have unity, fellowship, a closeness and an intimacy with people because of you. We just ask for help in, in knowing what that looks like and how we live it out on a daily basis. We trust you, Lord, that as we abide in you and enjoy you, that you'll speak very clearly to what that looks like. And so we present ourselves to you as a body of believers Lord, I, we ask that you would move in us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us to go out and do the work of ministry, the work of an evangelist, that you'd stir up your body and give us gifts, that you would raise up evangelists that would go and do that and that we here would go out into the harvest and be used by you. Just nothing else matters. I pray you'd give us that heart of resolve to, to follow you no matter where it might lead us to do the things that are uncomfortable and hard, but Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted. You said if you were lifted up, that you would draw all men to yourself. And so we just ask for help. Enable us to do that. Put the gospel on our lips, Lord. Burden our hearts for people who are lost and hurting, that we would love them. 
We look to you now as we celebrate communion. We ask that you would bless this time. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.